Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Today we will continue in a series uh, started a couple of weeks ago on origins. We have learned that God created this world out of, he brought order to that which was in chaos, and then we learned the things that God has created so far. And today we'll continue in that series as Pastor Dave will lead us into the creation of mankind. And at this time, we will have our scripture reader. Haley. <laughs> so y'all know I ain't know who it was, right? <laughs> so as Haley has already come, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our reading today is Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the bird of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in it in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. It's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. Well, our title this morning uh, for this sermon, Is Mankind a Myth, Uh, is a uh, a strange title. Uh, You're sitting there looking at the people down your row and going, no, I can attest that these people seem real enough. But uh, the title comes actually from a book within a book. Uh, It's in the early pages of C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When Lucy first steps into Narnia and she comes into the home of one Mr. Tumnus, a strange little fawn, half man, half goat, and as he welcomes her into his house, there's a book on one of his bookshelves titled, Is Mankind a Myth? Because in Narnia, no one had seen a human being in a very, very long time. Uh, long enough that humanity had left their living memory. These people that they had heard about, people who uh, were given a certain amount of royal power and authority in Narnia, people who were given to rule Narnia underneath their great king. They had come to wonder uh, if their existence was a myth. And it's a potent question in our world as well. Is mankind, is humanity a myth? 
Not, of course, uh, because we wonder if people are real. We have 7.5 billion examples uh, to prove the reality of humanity. But uh, is mankind, as it's described in the scriptures, and as it's been believed through most of our history, a myth? Uh, Mankind made, as the psalmist said, just a little lower than the angels, and yet crowned with honor and glory. Mankind, as Genesis uh, attests, made in the very image and likeness of God in order to rule this world as his image bears. Is that a myth? We live in a world where uh, it's common and easy to believe that mankind, men and women like you and I, are just uh, the most successful evolutionary example that we are a very, very successful survivor and adapter. And so of all of the animal kingdom, we have risen to the top. Congratulations. Uh, And so now it is given to us uh, to survive as best we can. Is that who we are? Or is there something more to us, some deeper image, some more lasting purpose? Bertrand Russell, uh, British philosopher of the last century wrote this. Man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end that they were achieving. So no purpose, no mission. His growth, his hopes, his fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of the accidental collocations of atoms that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of all the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. It's an encouraging thought. And this is ultimately where a purely physical, purely material conception of human life leaves us. Without purpose, without identity, without roots, without value. There's a man uh, who I became acquainted with. Uh, He's actually a professor uh, here in Jacksonville at UNF, a man named Dr. Chris Gabbard. As a young academic at Stanford, he was committed to the ideas of Peter Singer, uh, an Australian scientist. Singer's distinctive idea is that human life uh, is ultimately the total of rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness, right? That if a person is not independent, rational and autonomous, then they can't have a life that's meaningfully considered human. This has led Singer to not only advocate for abortion, but for infanticide, the killing of disabled infants. Euthanasia, both voluntary and involuntary, of those who've outlived their usefulness to society. A cold, materialistic view of human life. And so this was the worldview that Dr. Gabbard grew up in. It's what he embraced. He says that he grew up prizing intellectual aptitude above all else and detesting those that he considered to have poor mental functioning until he had his first son who was born with severe and permanent brain damage, Uh, lived most of his life uh, a quadriplegic, most of his life without sight. And this is what he writes in his memoir. He says, after his birth, I was deeply ambivalent, having been persuaded by Peter Singer's advocacy of infanticide. But there was my son, asleep or unconscious on a ventilator, motionless under a heat lamp, 
tubes and wires everywhere, monitors alongside his steel and transparent plastic crib. What most stirred me was the way that he resembled me. Nothing had prepared me for this shock of recognition, for he was the boy in my own baby pictures, the image of me when I was an infant. He looks and he sees his face in the face of his son. He sees his image looking back at him in spite of all of the other trappings around keeping this young life alive. And it was seeing his image in his son that transformed Dr. Gabbard uh, into one who now leads a nonprofit advocating for the rights of the disabled, uh, who leads an organization that's dedicated to the idea that every human life matters, that it matters to God and that it matters or it ought to matter uh, to us. Every life. Matters, And it was seeing something of his image, which points to something that we know is true, which is that children bear the resemblance of their parents, right? That when you look at your children for good or ill, you see something of yourself there, right? Even in the instance when it's not biological, a genetic inheritance, adopted children will begin to reflect the mannerisms and the phrases of speech of the home in which they grow up, right? We see ourselves, we see our image in our children. And at the most basic level, that's what it means when in Genesis we read that we are made in the image of God. That we bear something of the image, not just of our birth parents, but that we bear something of the image of our Heavenly Father. And that it's bearing His image, something of His nature and His vocation and His dignity and worth that gives worth to every one of our lives and the life of every one of our neighbors. When Dr. Chris Gabbard saw that image, it transformed his view of of human life from one who saw it purely from a utilitarian standpoint, a person is good for what they can do, what they can produce, to one who became a champion of the image of God in all people. In this idea of the inherent worth and dignity and value and wonder of humanity had the power to change his life, and it truly has the power to change the world. It's that belief in the image of God that's fueled Christian efforts at justice and equality and human rights for thousands of years. It's what we read, uh, what Batch read so eloquently in the prayers of Dr. King that motivated uh, the desegregation movement as it had the abolitionist movement before it. The image of God in everyone. You know, so far in Genesis 1, uh, we've, we've been in this for a couple of weeks now, so far we've been introduced to, to really one character, right? The one actor driving the action in Genesis so far has been God. God speaks, God creates, God orchestrates. And here at the end of Genesis 1, we get introduced to the other main character in the Bible, men and women, you and me. And there are other characters that will come and go, Right, Some good, some malevolent. There are other characters in the story, but principally the story of the Bible is the story of these two characters, the drama of these two characters, the creator and his image bearers, men and women. The story of the Bible is the story of God's pursuit and his reconciliation with his fallen image bearers. And so God speaks In verse 26, and he says, let us make man in our image 
after our likeness. This is different than anything that's gone on before in Genesis. Up to this point, it's just been God said, let there be, and there was. God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. But here, God says, let us make man in our image. What we are doing here is we get to eavesdrop on a conversation within the Trinity itself. The Father speaking to the Son and speaking to the Spirit and saying, let us, out of the overflow of our divine life, out of the overflow of our perfect love, let us make one who reflects us in a way that nothing else that we have made thus far does. Humanity images God in a way that even the most beautiful sunset, the most majestic mountains, the birds in the sky, the fish of the sea, the plants of the earth, all that God's made to this point, at no point does God say, that is my image. It might show something of my power, my creativity, my originality, but it does not reflect my image. And so God says to himself, or himselves, Right? This is, I mean, you get some witness, some little glimpse at the mystery of the Trinity where God says, let us. Right? If I hear you talking that way, I will call a doctor. But God can refer to himself in that perfect unity, perfect plurality. Let us make man in our image. And so what is the image of God? It's principally three things. That we are made for relationship with God. We are made to reign under God, and we are made to represent God. We're made to relate to God. You are made for God like a lock is made for a key. You are made in a way uh, that can only fit with God himself, in a way that no other piece of the creation can, uh, can say, you can say that you were made for God, that you were made out of his love, out of his wisdom, and you were made so that your heart cannot be full, cannot rest, cannot know life, except for in communion with your creator. You were made to love and to be loved by God, to know God and to be known by God, to love others as one who was made relationally, one who was made to know and to be known, to love and to be loved. Every human being, every man, woman, and child is made with a thirst for communion with the Trinity that cannot be satisfied in any other way. And if uh, your life is marked by a kind of a restless hunger, it could be because you are trying to meet that infinite and eternal need for the Trinity in some other way, trying to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart with some other created good. And it will not work. It's like trying to put, put water in your gas tank. right? Your car wasn't made to run on that. right? Your soul was made to run in communion with God. And you will, as Augustine said, be restless until you learn to rest in Him. But every one of us, every one of our neighbors, every one of our children is made with a heart that yearns and longs and thirsts for communion with God, so you're made to relate to God. We're made to rule or to reign under God. Notice uh, the royal language that accompanies the creation of humanity. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, 
And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. To have dominion, to subdue the world, means that in the world of Genesis, in the world that the scriptures paint, we are made as kings and queens. We are made now not as the, but the God's design universe, right? You reign under a king. But that God's design for the creation was that he would rule as king and lord, and that under him, Adam and Eve and their progeny, all the way down to you and me, would serve as we lived in relation with God, as we sought to, to worship him and love him and model our lives on him, as we sought to reflect his image, that everything that we touched, we would come to bring into his reign, that we would steward the good world that he made and to reign under him. This is, uh, these verses, this call to fill the earth and to subdue it and to have dominion, is what's been called uh, by some theologians the cultural mandate. The cultural mandate. What does that mean? It means that, you know, God is the only creator. God is the only one who can make something out of nothing who can take uh, no matter and make matter, who can take nothingness, formlessness, and void and bring life and bring materiality into existence. We're not creators, but we're made in the image of a creator. And so the cultural mandate means that though God makes something out of nothing, creation is what God makes. Culture is what we make out of what God made. Right, that our calling is to take all of the latent potential of creation and to cultivate it. Right, whether it's millions and millions of years ago, right, God made trees that could be used for wood and God made flint, but it's culture that made fire. Human ingenuity and capacity that God gave them that says, oh, I could take the spark and the wood and make a fire and now I'm warm and my family's warm. Right, God made wheat that's his creation, but the cultivation of bread is the cultivation of human culture. God made grapes, we turned it into wine. God made uh, humanity and all of our physicality, but it's us who uh, were called to explore the body, map DNA, figure out the genome, figure out how to make people healthy, figure out how to treat illness. Right? All of these things are good. It's part of what we were created to do. We were called to take the good earth that God had created and to shape it and to cultivate it so that it can sustain life, so that it can uh, be and reflect all that God has for it. This is a part of what it means to be human. You know, it's for this reason that the concern of the Christian is never merely spiritual, right? That there was a mission given to humanity before there was sin. Right before the world was broken, right before there was a great commission to go and evangelize and spread the gospel, we were given a mission, the mission of cultivating creation. So when you go to work in the morning, right when you show up and whether you go to a hospital or a doctor's office, whether you go to a restaurant or you go to a classroom, wherever it is that you go, when you go somewhere, you go as a part of your created mission. To take some, whatever little part of the creation that you touch on a daily basis. And you may look at that little piece of creation and go, you know what, this really isn't that much. Right? I'm trapped in a classroom with kindergartners all day. That doesn't feel uh, like particularly massive. 
or I, uh, I go about and I'm cleaning an office, or I'm going out and I'm dealing with patients who are coughing all over me all day, or I'm going out and I'm working for a boss that I don't particularly like. But when you, I got a few more amens on that one than on the others. Um, but when you show up to work, you show up as an image bearer of God, called on a mission to take something that he's made, that he's entrusted to you, and to seek to make it a little more like it might be, like it could be. So we reign under God. We relate to God. And then finally, we're made to represent God. You know, this, Im- this, this language of bearing the image of God. In the ancient world, the image uh, played a unique role. That the kings of the nations, the kings of the empires of the ancient world, when they conquered new lands, when they moved into new places, one of the first things they would do would be to build images of themselves and to set them up in the town square or in the center of the temple. Why? Well, they didn't have, you know, they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have some other way to communicate, um, hey, guys, we're Babylonian now, or we're Assyrian now, or we're under the Egyptian reign now. And so as a way of, of proclaiming who this land belonged to, they would erect a statue of themselves, an image of Pharaoh or an image of Nebuchadnezzar, to say that where this image goes is the reign of this king. Right? We see something reflected of this even in the Gospels when Jesus says uh, to his disciples to take out a coin and look at whose picture's on it. And he says, oh, that's Caesar's picture. Right? It, was, it was his way of saying this is, this is within Caesar's reign, his territory. And so when God says that we bear his image, it means that where we go, we go as a sign and representation of his reign. That where his image bearers are is his territory. Where his image bearers are is the extent and uh, scope of his kingdom. You know, oftentimes we think of the early created accounts, like the world before sin, as though the entire place was paradise, as though the entire thing was the Garden of Eden. And yet if we read closely, we learn that he made Eden and he set it as a garden, and he put Adam and Eve in it. But outside of, the, outside of Eden, we're told, is wilderness, uncultivated land, land that had not yet been made to reflect that garden. And so he's saying, go, spread, fill that wilderness, cultivate it, make the entire world into a garden, make it cultivated like Eden, spread my image and my reign around the world. And so the image of God means that we relate to God, we rule under God, and we represent him everywhere that he calls us. And of course, as we'll look at in a couple of weeks, uh, there's bad news. That that image of God is broken. Right? That none of us fully relate to God from a posture of love and worship and humility. None of us truly views our life as a stewardship under his reign. None of us fully represents his character, his love, his goodness. Adam and Eve saw fit to be their own kings and queens, breaking his reign. And so sin is distorting the image of God, but it never eradicates it. Right? The image of God in you and me and in our neighbors is marred, it is broken, but it's never utterly done away with. It's never lost. We always, even in our sin, bear something 
of God's image, even a broken image. We might think of it as uh, the way that the moon on the water on a clear night reflects the image of the moon, right? If you walk out over a still lake or over a still river on a clear night and you look, the image of the moon on the water might almost look like an exact image and representation of the moon. It's clear, you can see its contours. But what happens if a cloud blows in front of the moon? The image gets broken up. What happens if wind blows across the water and it starts to get churned up and wavy? The image gets distorted. The image can be distorted, and that's what sin has done in every one of our lives. It hasn't, it hasn't ruined the image. It hasn't gotten away with the, the image, but it's blocked it, and it's troubled it, and it's marred it. But the good news, the good news of the gospel is that God has not left his image bearers broken. That he has not left us marred and scarred, but that he's come to us in Jesus. The Apostle Paul does something amazing with this image of God motif, uh, particularly in Colossians. He tells us in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the very image of the invisible God. Right, that in a way that Adam couldn't and that Eve couldn't and that no other human being ever has been able to, Jesus fully reflects the image of God. He fully reflects the divine character. He fully shows who God is. In fact, he was the one in whose image we were made. That Adam was built on the previous prototype of Jesus. And that each one of us, that Jesus is the prototype not only of who God is, but what a fully human life looks like. What an image bearer who perfectly relates to God, perfectly rules under him, perfectly represents him, what that looks like. So what that means for us, Paul's saying, is that if you, you can look at Jesus and you see an image of God, right? You see what God is really like. I mean, just imagine what that means for us, right? Some of us have lived with caricatures of God that have made us, that have led us to fear, that have led us to fear his judgment, that have led us uh, to feel like he is an abusive deity, someone who just wants our behavior, who just wants our performance, who just wants our production for him, who wants us to live a certain way, be a certain way, but we have no real sense of relational connection with him. And if Jesus is the image of God, this means that there is no God in heaven who is not like Jesus. Right? There's not some other God out there that's, that's hiding that's different, right? Jesus isn't a, a timeshare salesman that's hooking you with the good stuff, like, oh yeah, look how loving and kind and merciful and forgiving I am. And then once you get in, he says, yeah, but this is what my father's like. He's harsh and he's judgmental. No, no, the son perfectly reflects the character of the father. So when you see Jesus embracing sinners, when you see Jesus loving the least and the lost, when you see Jesus loving and pursuing those who are left out of his world, honoring the image of God in every person, when you see him extending grace to tax collectors and prostitutes, that's him saying, this is what God is like. God is pursuing you. God is for you. I am the very image of the invisible God. But it also means that we can look to Jesus and see who we're meant to be. Right? He is the image that we are meant to bear. And so we can look at him and see what a fully human life looks like what it looks like to fully live a life of love and wisdom and goodness and beauty. We can look to him and see that. 
And we can not only see it, but we can know that God, uh, if you belong to Jesus by faith, God is remaking you in the image of his son. Paul goes on in Colossians. After he said that Jesus is the very image of the invisible God, he says that we are being renewed in the image of our creator. That the spirit is working in us to make us back into the image we were always meant to reflect to make us whole and holy in Christ. God will see his image reflected on this earth. None of us are going to get there fully in this life, but we are being remade. And so, in conclusion, two things that I want us to think about uh, in relation to this doctrine of the image of God. When we really understand uh, the biblical picture of the image of God, It completely changes the way that we look at ourselves and it gives us a a solid foundation for an identity and a self-worth that is grounded and it forever changes the way that we view our neighbors. First, it changes uh, the way that we view ourselves. In the image of God, you have a foundation to know that you are of infinite worth to God, that your life matters to him. And that it matters in a profound way. That in your very being, you have been endowed with a value and a dignity and a worth that cannot be taken away. Remember what we've said as we've looked at Genesis, is that Israel received this book. They received this message after they had been liberated from Egypt. Remember, these are a people that had toiled away in Egyptian slavery for generations. So these people who grew up as slaves needed a new language to think about their selves, right? They needed a new way to think about their dignity and their worth. They grew up under a system in Egypt where they believed that Pharaoh was the son of a god, right? Pharaoh, the one who ruled over their lives as a god, who told them when they woke up and when they went to sleep and what they ate and what, how much work they did. Right? He ruled over their lives as a deity, and they would have believed that he was the image of a god, that he bore the image of divinity. They would have believed that the Egyptians bore some semblance to their gods, their masters. But the Hebrew slaves would have believed that they certainly did not bear the image of a god, that they were, however the Egyptian uh, hierarchy stacked up, they were at the bottom. And so when God says, let us make mankind in our image, let us make every man, every woman, every child in our image, it gives every life an immense and unshakable amount of worth. We all know what it is to struggle, to truly believe that we are worthy, to truly believe that we are worthy of love, that we're worthy of respect, that we're worthy of dignity. All of us at some level struggle with our self-image. I read an article a couple of years ago. It was uh, in the wake, there was a movie made uh, called Mary Queen of Scots where um, the, I'm not, Saoirse Ronan, I'm trouble to pronounce her name, but she, play, she plays Mary and Margot Robbie plays Elizabeth, uh, Queen of England. And the article is about that weird makeup that Elizabeth wore. If you've ever seen uh, an image of uh, Elizabeth I, Queen of England, you, we think of her with the, the big red wig and the, and the white uh, caked-on makeup. 
And they're interviewing the actress, talking about what it was like just to cake on that much makeup every single day. And they talk to a historian who says that Elizabeth, uh, as a child, was a beautiful girl. But she uh, had smallpox young in her life, and it left her face pockmarked and scarred. And so for the rest of her life, and the movie does a good job of showing this, she started with a little bit of makeup, and then she put on more, and then she put on more, until she wore what, what looks like a mask of makeup, entirely caked on and white. We all know what it is to cake up layers of hiding in our lives, to think that who we really are is not worthy. Look, if the Queen of England thought that she wasn't worthy of respect and love and beauty and admiration, how much are you and I going to struggle with that? Right? It doesn't, it knows, uh, it doesn't, it's, it's the same at every level of income and society. We struggle to know our worth. And so we cake on efforts and our self-hatred and our desire to hide. We add our accomplishments and our efforts. We add our diets. We add our best efforts at figuring out how to make ourselves pretty for the world. And the image of God means that you are already beautiful, that you are already good and righteous, that you are made in his image. Jack Miller, a pastor mentor of mine from a distance, uh, tells the story of sharing the gospel with a young man who struggled to believe in his own goodness. He had been abused as a child and now struggled to put his life together, battled with addiction, struggled to hold down a job. And he said uh, to Jack one day, he said, I'm just a lemon. That's a word we don't use a ton anymore. But uh, lemon, uh, you refer to an old car as a lemon, right? That you thought it looked good on the outside, you reached in and you got it, and you thought it was an orange, but it was a lemon, right? It was just wrong. And he says, I'm a lemon. God made other people right, but I'm just a lemon. There's something unfixable about me. And Jack told him, God doesn't make lemons, you're not a lemon, you're a sinner. And now, that, it doesn't seem like good news to hear that you're a sinner. But listen, if you're a lemon, you're always going to be a lemon. Right? If there's something wrong in the way God made you, then that's just who you're going to be. But you're not a lemon. You're made in the image of God. You're not, you're, there's, not, there's not something wrong with your design. You're just a sinner. Right? You just don't cooperate with your design. You don't cooperate with the God who made you. And the good news about sinners is they can be forgiven, right? They can be redeemed. They can be remade. They can be knit back together into the image of God. Because of Jesus, there's always hope for a sinner. Always hope for us. The Father loves you. Even before you're a sinner, you're his. And he sent his son, the very image of his glory, for us to bring us back to himself. So the image of God gives us a sure foundation for how we view ourselves. And then finally, the image transforms how we view our neighbors. You know, the other truly amazing thing about these verses in their context is that every other ancient Near Eastern creation story, the stories that the Canaanites told about themselves and the stories that the Egyptians told about themselves, they all were concerned about the origin of people. But they're all only concerned about the origin of that people, right? The Canaanites were concerned to know about how Baal made the Canaanites and how they were special to him and how they were better than other people. 
The Egyptians wanted to know about how Ra made him as their special people and how they were, they were special among all people. But in a world where every other creation story is fixated on how God made some people, this story is concerned with how God made all people. That God made all human beings in his image. Not just Israelites, but the Israelites and the Egyptians and the Canaanites and all the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Mosquito Bites and all the different people that are listed in the Bible. Right? God made all of them to bear his image. And it is the unique gift of Christianity to the world uh, in many ways to call this out that every man, woman, and child, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of culture, regardless of class, regardless of station, bears the very image of the Creator. In many ways, Christianity introduced human rights to this world as we know it. In the ancient world where a person's value was directly linked to their birth and to their power and to their station in life, Christianity came and said, no, no. Your value is in, it's inherited from your creator. And it resides in the poorest as much as it does in the richest. It resides in the powerless as much as it does in the most powerful. Tomorrow we'll celebrate Martin Luther King Day. Uh, Batch eloquently read a prayer, a series of prayers from Dr. King. I think we can all remember the images. I've, I lived in Memphis for a number of years, um, and I think we'll all remember the image of the 1968 Memphis sanitation workers strike, where uh, the predominantly or entirely African-American uh, labor staff of the sanitation workers, their union went on strike to protest inhumane working conditions, unfair compensation, it was this sanitation worker strike in 1968 that drew Dr. King to Memphis, uh, where he would eventually be shot. But the image, the enduring image, uh, aside from Dr. King's amazing uh, sermon, that's where he gave the, I've, uh, I may not get there with you, but I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. But the, one of the enduring images of this is of these uh, sanitation workers on strike with signs that they held up. Do you remember what those signs said? I am a man, right? I am a man. That, that slogan means less, less than nothing if you don't believe in the image of God, right? If, if all it is is a sign that says, I'm an accidental collection of atoms that happened to survive this far, then it makes no claim on the law and it make, makes no claim on justice. It makes no claim on reconciliation. But funded by their Christian heritage, the civil rights movement was built on the belief that all people, all people reflect the image of God. All people are alike in worth and dignity. All people are worthy of equal rights under the law. Each and every one of us bears the image of God. All people matter to God, and they should matter to us. This is the, the radical way that Christianity gives us to view our neighbors, that every single person matters to God, and therefore they ought to matter to us. They have a claim on our love and our loyalty and our work and our labor, because all people matter to God. The very, very rich and the very, very poor and everybody in between matters to God.
White people and black people matter to God. The born and the unborn matter to God. Men and women each alike matter to God. Every single person matters to God. Americans matter to God. Foreigners matter to God. Those born in our shores matter to God. Immigrants matter to God. All of us, every single person stamped with the image of God matters to him. I'll leave us again with the words of Dr. King. This is his commentary on the image of God. He says, the whole concept of the imago dei, that's the image of God as it's expressed in Latin, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and sisters and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that we don't yet see the one day. There have been real strides uh, made through the faithful labors of our brothers and sisters, not least men uh, like Martin Luther King Jr. But we still live in a world where the full rights of your image bearers are denied to many of our brothers and sisters. We're all are not viewed as having the same worth and dignity. Human cultures, it seems, never tire of ways of valuing some lives more than others. And so, Lord, we long for justice. We long for justice for the most vulnerable among us. We long for justice for the powerless. We long for justice uh, for those who have been persecuted. We long for justice uh, for those who have held to be less than. Lord Jesus, uh, we also long to truly taste uh, the reconciled, beautiful community that you are making in the church. Lord Jesus, it may be true that out there in the world, uh, we may never taste that one day where all of your image bearers uh, share uh, in an equal life. But in your church, Lord, it should be different. It should be a place where the fellowship of the saints knows no bounds. We're reconciled to one another as brothers and sisters. We can share our lives freely with one another. Where we can love and value one another. Where we can honor the image of God and, and celebrate the gifts given to each one and to each culture, and to each life. Lord Jesus, I know that there's some folks in this room who've struggled their whole life to believe that they matter. Who've struggled their whole life to believe that they are good and worthy of love and affection worthy of respect and dignity. Lord, I pray that by your word, by hearing that we are your image bearers, that you would heal our image of ourselves. Lord, not only are we made in your image, but that you loved us enough to send your son Jesus to live and to die as one of us, to give his life in order to bring us into your family, 
Lord, we pray that you would heal our broken image. That you would heal all of the broken ways that we think about ourselves, that we think about our neighbors. Heal us and make us whole, Lord Jesus. That we might fruitfully and faithfully reflect your image in our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.